Congratulations, you've made it to week 31 of our Route 66 campaign with Grace Church of Glendora. This week, we're going through the book of Isaiah. You got a little bit of a start on it last week with the first four chapters. This week, we'll continue from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 35. We won't finish Isaiah for another couple of weeks, so fasten your seatbelts as we start to get into the books of prophecy. When we talk about the books of prophecy, we're talking about what scholars call the major prophets and the minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel compose the four major prophets. And then there are 12 minor prophets, which consist of the final 12 books of the Old Testament. Now, when we use the words major and minor prophets, we need to be careful to know what our terms mean. These words actually come from the Latin, major meaning longer or larger, and minor meaning shorter. Now, the point of confusion here is that sometimes people think that major and minor prophets refers to their importance. Ah, the major prophets, they must be of more importance and the minor prophets of lesser importance. But that would not be a correct understanding. It just refers to their length, major and minor, long and short. Now, the books of the prophets were written in ancient Israel between the years of 760 B.C. through 460 B.C., So this would have started during the era of the kings and it would have gone all the way through the Babylonian captivity and the return to the land. So if you remember back to our study in the books of first and second kings, first and second chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, this is the time period that we're talking about when the prophets were living and working in Israel. The prophets often functioned as advisors to the king. And we'll get into a little bit more about their function in a few minutes. Right now, what we want to talk about are some common misunderstandings that people have about the books of the prophets. When we hear the word prophecy, our immediate thought is to think of foretelling or predictions that are to come in the future. And so it often happens, therefore, that many Christians read the prophetic books as only being predictions about the coming of Jesus, the messianic prophecies, or of certain features of the the new covenant age, or even events in the far distant future at the second coming of Christ. But the reality is that thinking about the books of prophecy in this way would be highly selective. In fact, only 2% of the Old Testament prophecy is about the Messiah and less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. And even less than that, less than 1% concerns events that are yet to come. So when we think about the prophets, it's very important that we understand that the prophets did indeed announce the future, but it was usually the future of Israel in Judah and the other nations that were surrounding them. It announced their future rather than our future. One of the keys to understanding the prophets is that for us, we need to see that most of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. We must look back at the times that for for ancient Israel, those prophecies applied to them in their future, but for us are in the past and have already been fulfilled. 
And so, therefore, to see even the prophets themselves as having a primary function of speaking about future events would be to miss out on really what they were trying to do. Their primary function was to speak for God to their contemporaries. Often, that would be to the leaders or to the kings. And it is this spoken nature of these prophecies that makes them so difficult to understand at times because many of the prophecies are arranged in a, in a poetic fashion. So there we've got two genres of literature happening at the same time. The nature of prophecy and also the nature of Hebrew poetry. So we've really got to get our thinking caps on when we read through the books of prophecy. We don't really know much about many of the prophets. Many of them, we just know their names. Sometimes we know where they're from. We know very little about their family of origin or whether they were married and had children. That sort of information is pretty rare. Really what we have is a collection of their spoken words. Their spoken oracles is the technical term for what the prophecies are. And they've been collected together for the purpose of preserving those spoken words for all time. Another important thing that we need to understand when we look at the prophets is to put them into their historical context. If at all possible, we want to try to figure out when did this prophet live? What kings were reigning? Is this prophet a prophet to the north, Israel, or is he a prophet to the south, to Judah? And that is critical because then we understand who the audience is for the prophecy. Sometimes the prophet was even speaking to the leaders of other countries that were surrounding Israel. The prophets were primarily enforcers of the covenant. They took the words of the Mosaic covenant and the laws of the Mosaic covenant, and then they would announce warnings that if God's people didn't obey his laws, that there would be punishments. Well, if we recall back to the end of Deuteronomy, remember all those blessings and curses we read. There's a few chapters at the end of Deuteronomy. That puts the context to the prophets. The prophets are simply like covenant enforcers. They're there to remind the people, hey, if you obey God's laws, blessings will come. But if you don't, if you don't forsake your idols, if you don't stop disobeying, If you don't live in a just, if you don't try to create a just society, God's curses will come upon you. So they didn't invent these blessings and curses. Rather, they're recasting the blessings and curses that were already there in the Mosaic law, but for the people and the times in which they lived. They were simply announcing God's intention to enforce his covenant for benefit or for harm, for blessing or for curse, depending on the faithfulness of Israel. So as you read through the prophetic books, you're going to want to look for this very simple pattern. First, look for an identification of Israel's sin or of God's love for his people. Second, you're going to want to look for a prediction of curse or blessing, depending on the circumstance. Those two points provide the the structure for much of the prophetic books. Now, a word of caution for us as Americans. Our tendency is to read the promises of blessing in the prophets as being blessings to us as individuals today. 
But we have to be careful about that. Blessings or curses under the Old Covenant law did not guarantee prosperity or punishment to specific individuals. Rather, they were blessings and curses for the people as a whole, for the nation as a group. In other words, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was heading for punishment if they didn't change their ways. Curses would come to them. Now, those curses would come eventually to individuals, but this promises specifically themselves are thought of in a group context, in a group identity. Now, this is a little bit more challenging for us to understand as Americans because our primary way of seeing the world is as individuals. Western culture is an individual culture, whereas cultures in other parts of the world tend to be more group-oriented cultures. And the Bible comes at the world from a group-oriented perspective. And so we have to kind of keep that in mind as we go through the prophets. We want to be careful not to over-personalize them for each and every single situation in our own life. Rather, we want to keep them primarily in the context of the nation of Israel and as their collective identity as the people of God. Since we're in the book of Isaiah this week, I thought it would be a good chance to pull off to the side of the road here for a minute and kind of get the big picture view of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in Jerusalem. This would mean that he was a prophet working in the southern kingdom. Now, remember, that was the kingdom of David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Josiah. Those were all kings of the south that we read about in the book of Second Kings. Now, his dates of, of activity would have been from about 740 B.C. to 687 B.C. And we know that by some clues in the text itself. Now, the book of Isaiah is just simply an elegant masterpiece. It has two basic parts. Part one is chapters 1 to 39. It deals with primarily with Jerusalem during the period of the Assyrian threat. Think back to the time of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. That would have been about the time when Isaiah was working. And the Assyrians were attacking the southern kingdom. They were just outside the walls of Jerusalem trying to starve the people out. But God comes in and saves them. Toward the end of the first section of Isaiah, he prophesies that the southern kingdom will eventually go into exile into Babylon. The second half of the book, chapters 40 to 66, focuses on the future of Israel and Jerusalem. What will happen to them at the end of the Babylonian captivity and even beyond? It climaxes with the the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and the final kind of end times of Zion. It's just a wonderful vision that Isaiah paints for us there. There are three major problems in the book of Isaiah that he highlights repeatedly that the people, first, they lack trust in Yahweh. If you think back to the time of Hezekiah, at first Hezekiah was hesitant to trust the Lord would deliver his people from Sennacherib and the powerful army of Assyria. 
The people lack trust in Yahweh as their defender. They keep wanting to make treaties with other nations and and pagan gods in order to try to get some extra insurance just in case God doesn't come through. This is a problem. And Isaiah is very busy highlighting this problem and bringing it to the people's attention. Second is the people's constant flirtation with idols. They need to leave their idols behind. They need to repent of them so that they will trust in Yahweh. And third is their lack of social justice. Isaiah highlights the parts of the Mosaic law that deal with how to love your neighbor as yourself and that the Jewish nation is not doing that. It's not obeying those laws. So Isaiah is highlighting that for them and bringing it to their attention. Some other key themes to look for as you go through the book of Isaiah is holiness. There is Yahweh who is called the Holy One of Israel 30 times in the book of Isaiah. Israel is seen as Yahweh's holy people and Zion is seen as God's holy city and his holy mountain. And there's also another thread that you're going to want to look for and that is little hints here and there of the inclusion of the nations or the Gentiles into God's covenant people. Many scholars think that this is kind of a a foreshadowing of what God will do when he sends Jesus into the world in the New Testament and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the new covenant. We have some hints here in the book of Isaiah of God's plan, his missionary program, if you will, to the Gentiles. So you can look for those things as well. So what can we say about the value of these Old Testament prophecies to us as New Covenant believers. As we said earlier, most of these prophecies, the overwhelming majority of these prophecies have already been completed. They've already been fulfilled. Maybe about 1% deal with the new creation and the second return of Jesus and his kingdom in the future for us. But the vast majority of these events have already passed. So what is their value to us today? Well, here's one thought. Just as they were given to encourage God's people in the past to persevere in their faithfulness to him, to leave their idols behind and to trust in the Lord alone as their deliverer. They serve to encourage God's people today to persevere in him in the midst of difficult circumstances. In light of the glorious future that we know that we have in the Messiah, we can choose right now to trust in him in the midst of today's circumstances. There are many offenses against God's covenant today in our own culture. There are things that offend God and his nature and who he is and and the ideals that he has set up for a just society. But we can take heart that even though we live in that culture, God is not dead. He has not forgotten us, his people, and he will strengthen us to live in the midst of this difficult culture, just as he did to those faithful Israelites in the old covenant. We shouldn't think for a moment that every Israelite was bowing down to false idols. 
it's very possible that there were some faithful in Israel, even though the leadership was corrupt, even though the religious establishment was corrupt, that there remained a faithful remnant in Israel and in Judah all the way into captivity. And yet those people were punished, again, because of the collective understanding of their identity as a group. And so we live today. We live in a culture of corruption. Even many of our religious leaders can become corrupt. But we remain faithful. And the call of the prophets calls to us today to be faithful to God's covenant, to obey his His word, and to trust in him that he hasn't lost control of the culture, but that he that his purpose that his purposes will persevere and that he will return he will set things right and that we can trust in that the goal of the prophecies is to encourage and to strengthen us for the difficult tasks before us that we will stand strong in a culture that is offensive to God but that we will remain faithful in the midst of that so be strengthened be encouraged let the prophets and their message sink deep into your soul because in that final day Jesus will be king over all the earth hallelujah we'll see you next week as we continue our adventure in the book of Isaiah. I can't wait. Isaiah is a wonderful book. I know you're going to enjoy it. And we'll see you then. God bless.